All right. Well, I'll call this Motley Crue to order. And um, we're going to look at the second book. The first book that we looked at was more of a straightforward defense of evolution. Uh, basically, it, the gentleman was arguing, Dennis Lamoro was his name. Uh, I think he and I are Facebook friends now. He, had, he hasn't reached his 5,000 limit, so we can actually be friends without me just following him or something. But anyway, um, and he, uh, yeah, basically off, he offered kind of a main line, I think, mainstream defensive evolution from the fossil record, from what you find in rock strata, et cetera. And uh, he's okay with that. And of course, many Christians are as well, but many are not. And so <laughs> this book written by uh, Joshua Swamidas, it's called The Genealogical Adam and Eve. And it's a thought experiment as I've said before, that basically proposes a very simple idea, which is that sort of both things are true. Uh, is there anything to indicate that both things cannot be true? That is to say that human evolution took place and that God specifically created two persons whom we now name Adam and Eve, and that those two persons created a family and eventually interbred with those outside of the garden who are products of evolution. So he ends up looking at a lot of things like, well, what, when does the image of God come into play? What about people outside? Do people who are products of evolution, do they possess the image of God? Um, you know, what about original sin and things like that? But I, I think mostly what he, he in his background is in, in the hard sciences. So he's an MD and he has a PhD. Let me just read his bio. Uh, he's a scientist, physician, associate professor of laboratory and genomic medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, where he uses artificial intelligence to explore science at the intersection of medicine, biology, and chemistry. So certainly qualified to, um, to speak on this. And uh, I think what he wants to do is sort of answer a basic question first, which is whether or not this thought experiment fails given evidence from hard science okay and we've already talked about this a little bit in this class but you know it, it, it it's nice to have thought experiments but if it if it fails then the experiment doesn't work you have to come up with a new one and uh to to kind of be the spoiler he his answer is that the thought experiment cannot be disproven there is there is no evidence that can be marshaled by anybody that disproves the thought experiment as possible that doesn't mean that it is the that it is the case but it's possible it's a way that those two things can be reconciled you leave intact the image of god you leave intact the fall into sin you leave intact specific uh that's not the right word but uh particular creation of adam and eve and you leave intact evolution and so um let me just read a little bit of this and um, and then definitely I want Lisa and Daniel to, to help me out here. Um, he says, for example, just so you know kind of where he's coming from, uh, he was raised as a young earth creationist, believed that the earth was 6,000 years old, followed a literalistic interpretation of Genesis, and he was taught that all humans descend from Adam and Eve. Um, and yet as he got older, he would wonder questions like, well, who was outside the garden that interbred with Adam and Eve's lineage? Because, you know, one of the typical, if you will, problems, now, of course, young earth creationists don't see it as a problem, but other people do, 
uh, is that, well, if Adam and Eve are all that there are, then are there children breeding with one another to create more children? There's no one, there's no one else. One of the problems that is solved with having people outside of the garden that the Bible does seem to, by the way, refer to. Uh, if you have people outside of the garden, now Adam and Eve's children can breed with them and you don't have, you know, difficulties of incest or whatever. Now, I think I mentioned this before, and I think Daniel and Lisa maybe have said something wiser than this or better than this, but my, what I have heard is that the Adam and Eve's genetic, genetics, I guess, if you will, are so pure that if their children did interbreed, it would not be a problem, you know, uh, like, whereas, you know, the English kings and queens who interbred, you know, with brothers or sisters or cousins or whatever, and it produced maybe birth defects or um, might explain how, how dim some of them were, you know. Um, were the any, Habsburgs with three kidneys? The Habsburgs had three kidneys. That I did not know. Real thing. Oh. Queens of Austria for centuries had three kidneys. What? Yeah, I was going to say they could drink a lot of uh, mead or whatever, you know, with no problem. Um, anyway, so um, so that that's, a, I think, one of the explanations. There might be others, but I don't necessarily want to explore that. But one of the things he says, he says, whatever one believes about Adam and Eve, evolutionary science does not require us to reject the Genesis narrative. Adam and Eve, ancestors of us all, could have lived as recently as 6,000 years ago in the Middle East. They could have been de novo, that is, uh, newly created. What does that mean, de novo? Is that from nothing? Yeah. Okay. They could have been from nothing created, the first, quote-unquote, humans of Scripture, free of death in a sinless environment. Ripped from the comforting clarity of conflict, we will see that evolutionary science could be true even as our loyalties remain with scripture. Now he does say something. This is a kind of a side note. He says, eventually I found a faith rooted in Jesus and not Adam. Whether or not Adam and Eve were real, there is public and private evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. On this cornerstone, I came to trust what God did in history to reveal he exists, is good, and wants to be known. And he says that several times. And, and that's a common refrain is that, um, my faith is in Je Jesus and not Adam. I, I, um, I, I think that's true. I like the phrase. Um, it's, it's not going to work for everybody to say that, right? Because at the end of the day, people are going to say, well, yes, but who is Jesus if not the new Adam? Jesus is the one who lived a sinless life, whereas Adam is the one who did not. Um, or if Adam, we get back to this whole question all over again of like, well, if Adam didn't exist as Adam is said to exist, then what do we mean in Romans 5, where through one man came sin and through one man came salvation? I'm badly paraphrasing, but you get the idea. So it, I mean, I, I'm a little weary of compartmentalizing too much the biblical narrative, like, well, I'll accept that, but I won't accept that. And this is the only thing that matters. Um, for example, um, it, it, there, oh, oh, there's someone in the waiting room. Uh, okay. Um, if you, um, you know, one of the things that's gone on in apologetic circles, I think, is if, if, if you make your target as small as possible, then you can defend it to the nth degree. That's fine, but skeptics are not only interested in your target, they're interested in this bigger set of targets as well, or this collage of objections to Christianity. So what you want to do generally is try to put them in your corner where you have the advantage, you know, fight on your territory, 
but they don't, they don't play by that. So, they, so I think the idea of saying, well, I'm going to only defend this, like something that I know for certain, like the resurrection. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, however, um, the, the unbeliever is, 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 not, is not always once, they're not always happy to be limited to that. You know, they don't always just want to fight on your turf. They've got, they want to bring their own turf in. And then you get into a question of presuppositions, like who actually gets to bring any turf into the question at all? Uh, I would argue the unbeliever brings in absurd conclusions and absurd um, territory. And so you have to point that out before you start arguing with them and putting them in the judgment seat of God, right? Um, okay. And I, think I wanted to add, he says that this book kind of came out of uh, a few years of just going to scientific and you know Christian conferences alike and having discussions like this with with people who don't believe and with believers and uh, so it's not just like he's putting this out there to see how people react he's he's talked about it with people and he's kind of mulled over it and he he you know still thinks it's a good idea which if you can like go and talk to you know your pastor or your uh, you know scientist colleague and it's still a good idea that's a good sign you know yeah yeah, he's definitely, in fact, the, the first chapter I'm reading from is called Courage, Curiosity, and Empathy. He is, he is doing his very best to offer a, a possibility of rational, loving, even, I would say, conversations around a very divisive topic. And he's saying, this is a way to understand these topics um, that doesn't compromise, I would argue, I think he would say, that doesn't compromise anything. Young Earth creationists would disagree. They think to compromise age of Earth and evolution at all is already a compromise. But from his point of view, he would say it doesn't compromise anything, but it offers a way that we can be civil with one another um, and might actually be the case. And he, you know, he does, I think, make an argument for it. L let me read, this is on verse 10 or page 10. This is, I believe I can say, his thesis of the whole book. He says it better than I can, of course. It's his thesis. Entirely consistent with the genetic and archaeological evidence, it is possible that Adam was created out of dust and Eve out of his rib less than 10,000 years ago. Leaving the garden, their offspring would have blended with those outside it, biologically identical neighbors from the surrounding area. In a few thousand years, they would become genealogical ancestors of everyone. Okay, so that's the basic theory, that all of that could have happened, and there is nothing in science that says that is impossible. Um, let me, um, he does make some distinctions between genealogy and, and genetics. Um, and... He says this, for example, he says, genealogical ancestry is not genetic ancestry. If genealogical ancestry is most important, then Adam and Eve could have been ancestors of us all as recently as 6,000 years ago. Human is a multivalent term with many definitions. In theology, the term human can be defined with theological precision, and it need not correspond with the scientific usage. Um, so, um, again, we talked about this, I know before, but basically genetic information sort of dies very quickly. 
okay? So you only get half of each of your parents' DNA. And so every generation beyond that, you're cutting that in half again, right? So you only have 25% of each of your four grandparents' DNA and 12.5% of your great-grandparents. So you have very, very little of your great-great-great-grandparents, very like, like 1% or something. And so imagine 6,000 years of that. You, you will have none of Adam and Eve's DNA. But the question is, biblically, is that, is that what we're looking for? Are we looking for a genetic silver bullet? Is that what the Bible's interested in? And the answer to that is, his, he would argue, no. What we're interested in is genealogical heritage. So the, 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 the things that come from Adam and Eve are passed on through genealogy, not through genetics. Okay? Um, anyway, that's, that's, the, that's just that first chapter. Any thoughts, Daniel or Lisa? No, I think you said it well. You know, the, 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 he makes a big distinction there. And he also talks, he says that genetics is both a, a telescope and a street lamp, you know, a street light. Um, so it can get very specific, but it's also just very broad. And whereas the, the ancestry, like you are 100% from your parents and they're from their parents. And that, that's the, the, the path, that's the kind of the path that we're, we're interested in here. Yeah. And I did want to add, you know, he, he states, I can't find the page number, but he basically says, I'm coming, you know, I'm coming from a place of where, where I am. I, the science has led me to believe that evolution is true. And so that's my starting point. You know, if you don't agree with that, just go on the thought experiment with me, but that's why we chose the first book to go over first, just to lay out some of that evidence. But then he's kind of putting that here as just, a, you know, already assumed. So he's starting from that place. Yeah. And now on this, this thought experiment with Adam and Eve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, how did Adam and Eve, were they, were they created as adults? Yeah. I, I think the answer to that would have to be yes. They seem to be mature, able to, say, care for themselves. I mean, right away you get into, um, I mean, I guess it depends on, again, how you number days and things. Although, um, you know what? Um, I might be able to do it quickly. Maybe I'll stop this at like 1040 because I have been meaning to do a share screen with the YouTube video of Jim Tour. I remember I said he gave a talk here He's a like genius at Rice who does a lot of stuff with nanotechnology. They did a podcast together um, on this topic, which I still haven't listened to. Um, but uh, he, I asked him about young earth stuff and um, I could find it very quickly. I meant to uh, have that pulled up and then, um, and then play that. I might do that for at 1040 because I think it'd be helpful. But one of the things that he argues is that we're still in the seventh day. And so the point is that Maybe once the earth is created, you know, in Adam is created on the sixth day, even if that was a 24-hour period. At that point, we don't know what the time frame is beyond that. So we don't really know how long, for example, Adam is naming things in the garden, which was sort of the task he was given. We don't know how long it was until God comes walking through uh, or when the serpent tempted them. I, it, it's, the it, it's something that happens next, but for all we know, it could have been 10 years later, but 
Yes, I think that um, I think that Adam and Eve would have been created as essentially adults, uh, and. <laughs> well there there are biblical boundaries to it uh rivers and so forth i, I think but, yeah a what a cherub oh uh yeah that's right yeah yeah there was a show on prime i didn't think it was very good what was it called good omens or something and it begins with a scandalous scene well not scandalous but a depiction of adam and eve in the garden and how it all goes wrong anyway um let me let me just read some of this this fleshes out his hypothesis what he calls the genealogical hypothesis on page 25 a little more he says um evolution and genesis would be telling us two different origin stories that could nonetheless be simultaneously true under this hypothesis number one they lived recently in the middle east Adam and Eve are situated in recent history, perhaps as early as 6,000 years ago and in the Middle East. We can explore if and how the evidence constrains where they could be located. Number two, they're genealogical ancestors of everyone. By AD 1, Adam and Eve are a couple from whom all humans across the globe descend. Now, I mentioned before, AD 1 is the date chosen because for Jesus to say what he says and for Paul to say what they say, then it would have had to have been true for everyone on earth at that time for Adam and Eve to be their genealogical descendants, right? If sin comes through one man, so salvation comes through one. Now, I guess technically, maybe it could be, uh, well, actually, let me think about it. I was going to say, technically, maybe it could be as late as 33 or 30, whatever year Jesus died. But actually, maybe it's important that it includes the birth of Christ, now that I think about it. <laughs> anyway, the point is that uh by ad1 adam and eve could have been genealogical descendants of everyone on earth and he goes we'll talk about the evidence for that but that is the case uh and then three they are de novo created uh god creates adam and eve by a direct act de novo from dust in a rib we have not specified the ways adam and eve are the same or different from those outside the garden but some constraints will arise um and so as he says he says there's no evidence against the hypothesis and um, so I'm jumping to page 29. Oh, let me say this too. I mentioned this before. I said we'd talk about it more. This is on page 28. He says, um, this, is a, this is about mitochondrial Eve and chromosomal Adam. You may have heard of them before. Okay, who are they? He says, in the genetic age, we first learned of mitochondrial Eve in January of 1987 with a wildly, not wildly, widely, reported study in Nature magazine estimating she lived about 200,000 years ago. The biblical allusion was prominent in the accompanying editorial titled Out of the Garden of Eden. Soon after, we learned of Y-chromosomal Adam. The best estimates place him about two to 300,000 years ago. The terms pay homage to a history of parallel conversations in theology and science about our origins. These religious terms seeped into the technical language of scientists because both theology and science ask overlapping questions. 
Um, but he goes on to say, and I thought it was on this page, maybe it is, but basically he, he does not give any credence to the possibility that these persons, who by the way can, can change, who those persons are can change, because everyone before them can also be that same person. In other words, let's say you can, you can, let's say we can go back to one woman who is mitochondrial Eve, so to speak, right? First of all, they're borrowing from the Bible, they're borrowing our language to, to, to try to make a scientific point. Well, everybody before her would also be mitochondrial Eve, right? Right, because if you, if you get to the point where there's one person who has given every woman there whatever, following well everyone behind her would be mitochondrial eve as well so that's one issue and the same would be true for a chromosomal atom the other issue is that there is some overlap in the estimate of when these people lived but the idea that they lived at the same time and in the same place interbred with one another etc is is so remote to be impossible so the problem with those terms is that they borrow from theological language they connect it to people and then you have even apologists. I've heard even apologists say, oh, well, I can believe the story of Adam and Eve because we have chromosomal Adam and we have mitochondrial Eve. That's the scientific proof that we need. The problem is that science was sort of loosely borrowing terms and names, kind of like when they call uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex Sue or whatever. I don't know why they called it Sue. Is it because the lady that found the bones in South Dakota was named Sue or something? Okay, so it's like, well, the name is sort of, it's, it's a cute name you give to a species or to a collection of bones that you can distinguish, or Lucy. Lucy would be a good example. Um, so the idea, um, so these are problematic ways. And so just in case you ever hear those phrases, it's Swamidas's position that, that is not helpful to our conversation and, and that there's really no stock in that from a theological point of view. So he doesn't, he, that's not part of the hypothesis at all. Um, I'm trying to think if I want to go into that or not. Um, Daniel and Lisa, if y'all want to jump in anytime y'all can, I'm going to kind of look ahead here and see what's, what's next. I was just going to say that the, the flip side of the point you were just making is that he's also kind of rebuffing scientists who come along and say, hey, I did this computation and I found out that uh, Adam and Eve would have to have existed 200,000 years ago to, in order to be the, the genetic ancestors of everyone. And therefore, you know, the, the origin story in the Bible is wrong. Ah, and, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's just a mishap. That's a confusion of, of genealogy and genetics. You know, they're not ah. the same thing. And the Bible is definitely not talking about genetics. And that's our, our issue. The comment we've been saying the whole time is often scientists and Christians with different motives like are just talking past each other trying to use terms that they've heard but they don't know what they mean you know and then end up getting misinterpreted and so if you read some headline in the news that it's obvious you know it's certainly almost certainly been sensationalized and don't you know do do the the research for yourself too and don't don't be nervous to to read into it yeah um yeah, and the next chapter is genetics is not genealogy. So um, he, he, he's at pain. That's a really good point, Daniel. I, I guess I'd kind of missed that that was the point he was trying to make, which is that um, the benefit of uh, talking about genealogy rather than genetics, which is the biblical language. Genealogy is the biblical language, not genetics. 
um, is that it, it, if, if a scientist wants to say, well, we know that the first persons go back hundreds of thousands of years, therefore Genesis must be false or what comes after it must be false. Um, we can say, well, no, 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 you don't understand. The Bible's not talking about chromosomes and mitochondria. The Bible's talking about genetics or uh, genealogy. So yeah, that's, that's, that's very helpful. Um, it's not uncommon for me to miss the point. So, um, you know, hence, I, I definitely want to tag team on this class. Um, let me, let me, um, so in this chapter, he says a couple things, as I've kind of already said, but he says genealogical ancestry grounded in the ordinary language of theology and scripture, neither of which employ the language of modern genetic science. Is that a typo? Genealogical ancestry grounded in the ordinary language of theology and scripture. I think it's missing a verb. Genealogical ancestry is grounded in the ordinary language of theology and scripture. Maybe I got it wrong. Anyway, neither of which is employed uh, the language of modern genetic science. And he goes on to talk about um, ge genealogical ancestry is connections in family trees. And um, what is an example of a genealogical relationship that is not genetic? Adoption. Adoption, right? And do adoptions happen in the Bible? Yeah, is in fact adoption a significant theme of the Bible? Yeah. It is, it is the yeah, exactly. It's, it's how we're saved. We are grafted onto the tree uh, of Abraham um, and, and that whole Jewish Gentile conversation. I mean, and argu arguably, <laughs> yeah. Evan got the right answer. So his wife said, this. <laughs> Amanda, you can sit here and give me kisses anytime I get something. Else, so. Um, but, um, yeah, and if you really stop and think about it, what was one of the main problems with Israel? They depended on their gen genetics. They depended on their genetics. They didn't have to. You know, hey, children of Abraham, if you don't shout out, well, these stones will. I mean, there are so many times in the Bible where genetics, lineage, is thought to be important, but it's like the gospel keeps saying it's not important at all because the way that God saves is through adoption. You're brought into the family by grace, not... Uh, not through uh, your lineage. And um, so he gives an example of, um, of this. Um, and he talks about how genealogical records, you know, are present um, in, in many, many places in the Bible, but certainly in Luke 3, for example, in Matthew 1. I mean, that's how the New Testament begins. Granted, Matthew is perhaps arbitrarily the first, you know, book of the New Testament. It wasn't the first written, but it is the fact that the very first chapter of the New Testament is the genealogy of Jesus. And so he says, genealogical relationships only include biological parentage. Not, is that a typo? <laughs> anyway, let me read it again. Genealogical relationships only include biological parent, parentage, but they exclude adoptive relationships due to uh, infidelity, adoption, or recording errors written genealogical records do not fall, always follow biblical biological parentage um i think he meant to say genealogical records not only include biological parent parentage maybe maybe i read that wrong or maybe i misunderstand danny and lisa y'all can fix it if, if if i'm wrong um 
anyway, he goes on to talk about DNA, genetic, um, you know, and I, I mean, I think a lot of us kind of have a shorthand view of, of we, we understand how this works, the various science that um, how DNA transfers genetic information from generation to generation. He says on page 34, for example, DNA is the molecule that stores and conveys inherited biological information from one generation to the next. I think most of us have, we know how that works because we all watched the OJ trial and we all got a crash course in DNA, right? That's how I learned about it. Um, he talks about the telescope in the streetlight. Can y'all explain that a little bit? I mean, the, he tells the old joke about a guy who loses his keys. Uh, they drop on the street and um, he dropped them on the other side of the street, but he's looking under the, 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 the side with the streetlight. And the guy says, well, why are you looking for your keys over there if you dropped them over on the other side? He says, well, I have light over here. You know, so the idea is that you, the problem with a, spot, a street light is that it can sort of, it can light certain things, but it can also miss the point. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about what he means about the kind of local light that it shines, but then the distant light it shines with the telescope. Yeah, so that... I, I don't know why he chose that metaphor. That always kind of confused me. But what I, what I think he's trying to say is that um, with genetics, you can... No, Vincent's trying to bite me. Okay. <laughs> with genetics, uh, uh, like you, you, could, you could study someone's genetics, someone who's alive today and learn a lot of detail about them. But if you try to look at the genetics of a, of population. a population and like look at back in time, it's not like we can take, you know, a sample of our blood and then go, aha, I've isolated Adam's DNA. Here it is, you know, you lose all that information. And so as you go back in time, the, the genetics are still, you know, you can learn some from it, but it's, it's much more general. And so like the specificity of genetics kind of bleeds out as you go further back. On page 35, he says, genetic ancestry tells us about populations in the distant past, but very little about particular individuals within larger populations. So he talks about kind of um, looking through a telescope, you, you, your peripheral vision is blocked out. Yeah. So for example, we know, I mean, if, if 23andMe is correct, <clears throat> we know, Sorry. what's that? I'm just going to add the street light, sorry, the street light, you know, from the other perspective, he's talking about like, you can do a genetic test to determine that Daniel is Vincent's dad, right? Like that, that's kind of the, the street lamp example. So sorry, if you sorry. did 23andMe, it'll tell you who your most immediate relatives are that have also done 23andMe and down to the thousands of a percentile, you have 4.678 DNA in common with this person. So they must be your first cousin once removed. And that's exactly what that'll tell you. On the other hand, I've learned that Amanda is essentially part Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> um, in fact, it seems to be higher than, than average. So I don't know. <clears throat> but that's, I, think, I think the one is the streetlight where you see your immediate family through DNA, but the, it, within the genetic information of gen, DNA, is genomic information, I think, right? When we talk about the human genome, it's looking at these genes that are passed on and you can trace them, not necessarily through a DNA test, but I don't, well, I don't know how they're, and they're, they're sort of traced back. I, but anyway, I don't, do they look at old DNA samples? Is, does DNA even survive more than a 
hundred years or a thousand years? I don't know. Evan has a question, and then maybe Dan and Lisa no, will come back on. This is why you don't need Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows I'm the Neanderthal in the relationship. I like to build fires and and grill meat. Okay, I mean, come on. But did I? I don't know. Did I get that somewhat right, Daniel and Lisa? Uh, yeah, I think so. And then Lisa, she, she's trying to entertain Vincent, but she was nodding to me that yes, you can recover DNA from, uh, you know, from bones and from other things. So they, they do have samples over time, but. Okay. So if we did have a really old sample where we could trust the dating on it, we talked about carbon dating and its difficulties and so forth. But if there, if, if there are ways we could date something that was really old and we know that DNA, then we could say, well, in Amanda's DNA, I just use her cause we did 23 me. In Amanda's DNA, it has these genomes. You know, it's not that they're, we can't tell if they're related, but you know, there are genomes that, that, that are here and here. And so they must've passed on. So anyway, the, he, he goes on to talk at some length about how mitochondrial Eve and why Adam um, are, are not likely to, to be the biblical Adam and Eve. And, and that it, it's really unhelpful. Um, he says this, he says, they are instead a pair of strangers who most likely lived in different millennia and whose identity changes as time passes. They are the people at which the genetic telescope is pointing along with several other individuals, but there's no reason to think that they're the Adam and Eve of scripture. And so I think I'll, I'll kind of stop that there. Um, unless you want to kind of uh, say anything else, Daniel, I was going to look quickly for that YouTube uh, clip of, of Jim Tour. I thought it would be interesting. I've been meaning to do it for a few weeks and I'm going to share my screen. So y'all should be able to, to hear it as well. But any, any other thoughts, any, what did I leave out? No, I think that was a, a really good uh, job covering that. So yeah, we're, we're excited to see this Jim Tour clip. I don't think we've seen this before. Cool. Well, it actually pulled up right away somewhat amazingly. And, uh, it's right at the one hour mark. So, I'm just going to share screen and I'm hoping, hopefully the audio will come up on the video as well. We well, I, I was thinking that as I was sitting there, uh, I, I think it would be worth noting if you wouldn't mind, um, because um, one, one, uh, one, one thing I've heard before, for example, and this may be as a pastor, I'm not sure. It may be more in the realm of biology rather than, than chemistry, but I've, I've heard some that say that, for example, four billion years is not, even that is not enough time to account for all of the complexity of life given Darwinian evolution at, at the rate that things change. I, I don't know if you have a comment on, on that, um, if, if, if you could tell how long it might take for the complexity of life that we have, if four billion years would be enough. Um, and if not, where, where does that leave maybe the age right. of the earth? Right. So, yeah, yeah the, 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 t time tells us a lot. So when the earth cooled, we know the earth had to have been very hot. If you look at the moon, it's pelted with these meteorites that left all these big craters. The same craters that hit the moon, that formed on the moon, were here on earth. That's why we have all of these rich elements on earth, just huge riches of elements from, from uh, uh, all over have hit this earth six times more than the moon because our, our mass is greater than that of the moon. It's just that we have an atmosphere which has smoothed things out, which the moon doesn't. 
But as soon as the earth cooled, we have evidence of forms of life immediately. Time element goes away. Within very, very short time frames, life bursts forth on earth. Now, if we consider young earth versus old earth, again, I'm very sympathetic to the argument of, uh, um, of young earth argument from the Bible being somewhere around 6,000 years old. And, and I'm sympathetic to that because if you do take the, the, the first six days as being, as being literal 24-hour days, then you would come up with that. The interesting thing about that is even Jewish scholars never took those as being 24-hour days. There were very often that, that the word day, yom, is, is translated differently and used differently. Even they'll say a, a day of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Okay, well, when Jesus said that, it was the day. It's no longer that day. You know, so there's many usages of the word day. But what we find is, I think one of, the, one of the best arguments is that of Gerald Schroeder, who's not a Christian, but, but a, a Jew, who's an Orthodox Jewish physicist. And what he talks about is this time is relative. And let me, let me describe it to you this way. We know that our universe is expanding. Today will be a longer day than yesterday. Very slightly longer but longer. And we know that because our universe is expanding. Any scientist, this has been shown over and over again that the universe is expanding, meaning that it burst forth from a point and it's constantly expanding. As it's expanding, our days are getting longer and longer. Our 24-hour day, it's usually 24-hour plus a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. That means that at the burst of the universe, time was very different than it is today. If we look back at this, this is a long period of time. It was a short period of time there that we, as we look back. So if a laser was firing every second, and we look at that time, that, that light now, it would look like a very different time frame. Not every second, it would look like a very massive time frame. Time is relative by the expansion of the universe. This is clear. The universe expands, time is relative. And so then what Gerald Schroeder did is he didn't leave it at that, and he has it in a book, and, and other people have taken these numbers and dissected them. And you look at the time period, day one. The sun doesn't even come out until day four. Now, you can deal with that in different ways. Day four, you still have things happening long before there's a sun, day one, two, and three. But... but uh, um, but the key is that if you look at what was formed on the different days in the Bible, that that matches up historically. Now, if you take mankind, for example, humankind, don't want to even say mankind. I've got to train myself out of that in the university. There is no man. There's only human. Humankind. You take humankind. Humankind burst forth on the scene as we know it. There were certainly bipedal creatures, Neanderthals and things like that, but human beings burst forth on the scene sub 100,000 years and maybe sub 50,000 years. 50,000 and 6,000 are the same when you're talking about geological time frames. They're really the same. We know that, that, that you all of a sudden start seeing bipedal creatures walking on two feet that all of a sudden have culture, have music, bury the dead, have religion because they're burying the dead with trinkets. 
all of this burst forth on the scene within the time frame that the Bible gives us for the bursting forth of humankind. There were bipedal creatures in the, in, in, in the geological record that are there, that are clearly there, but they weren't humans. They weren't humans. Humans as we know them burst forth on the scene. And so when you take that, that the time is relative, it's very hard, it's, it's, you get a very different perspective. And I remember sending these articles to a biostatistician at uh, MD Anderson, who's a friend of mine and a Christian, and he started tearing apart the numbers. He said it is spot on for when this was created and this was created. And now, you know, the seventh day never came. You look in the book of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. The seventh day is never gone. There's a, there's, there's a good understanding that we are still living in the seventh day. There is no new creations. There are no new species coming up. There's no new creations here. The only thing we do is we lose species. We're still in this time where there's no new creation there's, as far as species and things. We are still in this Sabbath rest, still in the seventh day. Because, we, all right, well, he rested on the seventh day. And how about the eighth day? There's no eighth day. And, and, and so we are still living in this seventh day. So theologically, this makes sense to me. Scientifically, it makes sense in the expansion of the universe. And if you just Google this, Google Gerald Schroeder. Gerald Schroeder, doesn't matter how you spell it, it's going to come up. Age of the Universe. Gerald Schroeder, Age of the Universe. And it's like a three-page article, and you go, wow. That was tremendous. I have sat with young earth creationists. And you know when you read that article, you know what you come out with? Both the old earth and the young earth creationists are right. Both are right. Because when you look at it from one perspective, it happened in a very short time period. When you look at it from our perspective here, it happened over a very long time period because time is relative. That's the beauty of that article. No matter what your background, no matter what you feel on this, old earth, young earth, you're going to walk, walk away and say, I was right. All right. I hate to stop that, but it's on, our, it's on our YouTube page if you want to go listen to the whole thing and what he says. And that's not really even the point of his uh, main argument there. His main argument is that if you're going to argue for evolution, you need to do so from the molecular level, not from the bone, the bone record, you know, the fossil record. Um, and, and because if, if, it's cap if it's capable of happening at the molecular level, that is something that we could more easily demonstrate, right? We don't have to rely on the historical record. Anyway, it was an interesting argument. And the, 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 um, the person he mentioned is the book that we should all read if we really wanted to study all that more, Schrader, I think. Something Schrader, Gerald Schrader or something. So um, I just kind of wanted to play that. I thought that was interesting. But basically using the idea that time is relative is, is a way that all this could be true once again, that it, it, it looks old, but it actually is, is not because we're measuring things by our time in the universe, which is longer than previous time. I don't know. It's probably all over my head, but we have to go regardless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for each day. We give you thanks for the, the rain that we need. We give you thanks for time and fellowship and for creating us in your image. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.